Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and you're listening to the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like normal book club, except you only have to talk if you actually want to. This month, we're talking about N.K. Jemisin's The City We Became. I am here with Jen White, who hosts WBEZ's daily talk show for just a couple more weeks. And then later this summer, she's going to go start hosting 1A, which is a national daily talk show from NPR. Jen, hey! Hey, Greta Monster! (laughs) Okay, so the book is called The City We Became. What city would you become if you had to choose a city? This is like our, you know, I'm putting you on the spot icebreaker question. I'm a Detroiter. Yeah. I would become Detroit. Yeah. I that's who that's I be. <laughs> I love that. I am also here with Mitchie Trota. She is a four-time Hugo Award winner. She's also the first Filipina to win a Hugo Award. She's the editor-in-chief of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America and senior editor at Prism. Mitchie, welcome. Hi. So same question for you. If you had to pick a city to embody, what do you think it would be? Absolutely, Chicago. Yeah. Chicago is my home. It doesn't matter where I've gone or other cities that I've loved traveling to. Chicago is my home city. This is where I feel the most at home and I feel the most connected to. And I would absolutely love to be considered part of Chicago enough to become an avatar for the city. Oh, I love that. That's a beautiful answer. Okay, so we're also going to hear from some of you. We've gotten some great listener voicemails that we'll listen to. Actually, you know what? Let's just let's start by listening to one right now. This is Anne. Hi, Nerdette. It's Anne from the Netherlands. Um, what a book this month, fantasy. I'm not really used to reading fantasy, but I really am loving it. I haven't finished it yet. And I think it's such such an inventive book and I love the parallel world of it and the world building a little bit. But also I think there's pretty much subtext in there. So I might really need to read it again after I finish it. I hope you uh, are feeling good at these weird times. Lots of subtext indeed. So as I mentioned, we are talking about The City We Became. It's the first book in the new Great Cities series by N.K. Jemisin. A couple weeks ago, I actually got to interview Nora, the author, in a spoiler-free conversation that you can find in this podcast feed. But today, we are going to dive in headfirst to a pool filled with spoilers and maybe even some tentacles or whatever. So uh, you maybe want to wait to listen to this episode until you have read the book at least once. Um, But I don't know, maybe you're one of those people who's like, you know what? I love spoilers and I don't really care that much about reading books, in which case you are welcome to join us as well. Um, So I think we should start by unpacking like the general premise of the book and then we can get into the nitty gritty of it. Um, As I mentioned, I got to talk to Nora And she actually did such a great job of explaining the premise that I think we should actually just listen to that. We're going to let her do it and then we can get into it. So it's set in the real world, um, set in New York City of right now and in the mythology of the story for, for reasons that become clear over the course of time. Cities, when they reach a kind of certain point of development, become alive. They become sentient entities of their own, able to act on their own in in various ways. And they choose a single human being who is uh, the representative of that city's spirit and, and kind of the director of its energies. You know, you can call that person an avatar if you want. So New York's Avatar Awakens in the prologue, um, which is actually based on a short story that I did a few years ago called The City Born Great. And uh, New York's Avatar Awakens and fights off an existential evil that tends to show up whenever cities become a thing. 
then uh, because New York is too big for a single person to embody, um, he falls into an enchanted slumber and the five avatars that represent the boroughs then awaken. Um, so the story is all about the avatars kind of figuring out what the heck is going on, what are they supposed to do. Also, they're being attacked by creepy tentacle monster creatures. Oh, by the way. Yeah. Well, <laughs> as, as one does. How does one deal with existential horror from beyond? And in this case, with New York, we have not only the city being embodied, but also each borough within the city. So the characters we're working with in this book are Manny, who represents Manhattan. He's a young black man who's got amnesia. We've got Bronca, who represents the Bronx. She's a queer Native American woman who runs an artist's co-op. We've got Padmini Prakash, who is Queens. She's an Indian immigrant and a grad student. And then we've got Brooklyn, who's Brooklyn, who is a middle-aged councilwoman who also used to be like an old school rapper. And then our fifth borough is Staten Island, who is embodied by this woman named Islin, who's an Irish-American white woman with anxiety issues and like kind of an asshole cop dad. Um, so those are our main characters. Um, as Nora mentioned, this is also a spinoff from a short story that was in her collection, How Long Till Black Future Month. Um, I think another thing just that's like, I don't know, that I thought was really interesting about this book is that unlike her others, it actually takes place in modern day, like on Earth even, right? Which like she's written, I don't know, at least eight other novels that have all been like, you know, still highly allegorical, still highly relevant to modern day society, but like taking place like not on this planet. So, yeah, I thought it would be kind of fun to start with each of you telling me, who, picking favorites and telling me who your favorite borough was. Mitchie, do you want to start? Oh, put me on the spot. <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> it was so hard to pick who I think all the boroughs are fantastically individually drawn. And I, I love the amount of research and love that Nora clearly put into creating these very complex and deeply thought out characterizations of the boroughs and the type of people who would embody them. Um, but I guess the one who I'm probably the most connected to was Bronca. Mm -hmm. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> See, you know me, Jen. You know me. Bronca was just so, uh, you know, can we swear on this podcast? Yes. Is that okay? Go for yeah, it. Yeah, Bronca, Bronca was completely out of fucks with everybody. <laughs> and just her prickly nature was completely earned and justified like it, she could very easily have been that trope character of, you know, the, the one who is hardened and doesn't need people. And, you know, I've been making it on my own for so long. I don't need any of you, mm -hmm. but I love how, you know, I think Nora talked about coming up with the characters as basically like a Voltron of mm -hmm. New York city of having these individuals who clearly have their own strengths, but work, that much more powerfully together mm -hmm. and with Bronca her realizing how it's necessary to sort of get over herself without uh, minimizing the causes of her suspicion and her anger and her own experiences was I think really really beautifully portrayed and I really loved especially the interactions between her and Brooklyn <laughs> mm -hmm. they had some stuff to work through yeah it was great and just like interpersonally and also it mirrored you know the idea of what Brooklyn is like as a borough versus the things that the Bronx has gone through just all of it I love them all together but Bronca is like no I, I really I don't know if it's because I'm approaching because I'm like now hitting middle age but Bronca really filled my heart like I get her <laughs> I really really get that also, the steel-toed boots were fantastic. <laughs> that was such a great little piece of characterization. <laughs> so what about you, Jen? Oh, it's always hard for me to pick out favorite characters um, because I felt something in a sense of resonance with each of the characters. But I will say that Manny's experience as Manhattan mm -hmm. spoke to me directly as someone who was a transplant to a major city because I moved to Chicago uh, a bit over four years ago, and now I'm moving to another city. <laughs> and this sense of kind of like displacement, but also familiarity. Like I've lived in, in big cities most of my life. And so 
there's something a little familiar, but you're also trying to find your footing and figure out where you fit in and figure out why certain things feel familiar and why other things just feel completely alien. There is this sort of amnesia when you, when for me at least, when I start in a new city, it's like I have to learn everything mm-hmm. all over again and figure out who I am within the context of that new place. And so there was something about his experience that really, that really spoke to me. Yeah, so, so many, but, I, but I'm kind of, I, I loved Bronca too, but I also <laughs> love Brooklyn. I mean, like Brooklyn, for me, she was so, she was the one to me who was like, yeah, if I was going to be in a fight, I would want her with me because she could either just cut somebody with words, like a knife, like if it mm-hmm. was a verbal oh, argument, yeah. Oh, yeah. like she would just cut it down, but she would also you know, pick up a brick if that was necessary. You know what I mean? Like, could roll both ways. And I kind of love that about her. Well, and I mean, the fact that she's like a city or a councilwoman now too, right? It's like she's within the system. She's like figuring out how to make it work. Like, I think that is also really fascinating about her, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's like, she's, she's that character who came from one place and is trying to navigate that, like, how do you utilize power within the system without replicating respectability politics and without losing who you are and the fact that you know there's that one scene where she comes she basically fights off the creatures from the other world by rapping like just pulling in on her deepest self and who she really is like that scene was just so good i mean i love the whole book but just that being able to see that she hadn't lost who she was. And also for me with Brooklyn, the importance of home and place really spoke to me through her experience. Like the thing, the way she was attacked was by the lady and the woman in white, literally taking her home, Right, you know, Mm -hmm. this place that, that she'd, worked and fought for and carved out this space for herself and for her father and for her daughter. And that was the point of attack. Um, You know, seeing how my parents really fought and worked to have homes for us that were like permanent, that were places we could always come back to. Like that attack felt deeply personal to me. Like I got that at, at a gut level. So yeah, each of it's hard. Like again, it's hard for me to say this character was my favorite because there was something about each of their experiences. And I, I hear you, Mitch, you on that woman of a certain age. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> Woo. The well is shallow, man. The well is shallow. <laughs> I, I hope that I can grow into somebody who, as as she continues to age, like just cuts the bullshit mm-hmm. and doesn't. You know, and learns how to cut the bullshit without also becoming so brittle that you don't know how to connect with other people anymore. But like, no, this is how we relate to each other. And we have to be honest and not do that whole tap dancing around thing. I mean, that's one of the reasons I love Chicago as a city is that people here just, you know, they're friendly, but they get to the point. There's not a lot of dancing around. Mm -hmm. It's very like upfront who they are and what, whether or not you want to spend time on getting to know somebody or you're like, nope, we're not going to waste your time. Let's not waste mine. Mm-hmm. It's really like how all of the characters just really embody all these different bits of New York. And I think that was one of the things when I read the initial, the original story, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, that's really an interesting idea that you have one person who embodies a whole city but cities are so complex, Absolutely. particularly New York. How can you possibly have one person that can embody the entirety of a city and what it is? Yeah, I think it's really interesting, too, the fact that that Manhattan has amnesia, because I think to a certain extent it also speaks to to like the complicated history that's taken place there mm. and the fact that it's really easy to overwrite that or it's yeah. convenient for people to forget those things and 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 yeah i just thought like the symbolism of that was was pretty fascinating with that character well and when we get into the complexity of who manny is or who he was before he became manhattan like he he was 
not a nice guy. Right, right. You know, he was not a, a person who who you would want to bump into on the wrong night. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And mm-hmm. and I think that there, you know, you get a hint of that. And I wonder if more of that will present itself, you know, in, in the subsequent books. But it, it feels like in becoming Manhattan, some of that, um, I, I don't want to say the cruelty, but some of the hardness that yeah. he had yeah. as Manny was necessary in the personification mm-hmm. of, of Manhattan. Like he needed that, a part of that personality in order to defend New York the way it needed to be defended, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, and also the idea that like, oh, glittering Manhattan. It's like, no, glittering Manhattan, it's nice and genteel and it's really pretty to look at, but it will eat you alive if you are not careful, if you don't know how to talk the right talk, Mm -hmm. if you don't know how to guard who you are. And I think like that makes his character really like, yeah, I think that's it's a really good metaphor for what the city is. Here's this really good looking, very, you know, pleasant, you know, pleasant demeanor person. Sort of racially ambiguous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think they say like he's, he's black, but he's light. I think he's like uh, lighter skinned. Yeah. yeah. And one of the other uh, characters spends a lot of time trying to pack, like looks at him trying to figure out like, well, I see a little mm-hmm. and, and it's, and he's like, oh yeah, I, I know these, co- like this has happened to me before. Right. Like, right. Random yeah. person trying I, to figure out I really out love box. how Nora doesn't pull any punches on those those characterizations and doesn't try to you know soften what those experiences are mm-hmm. for you know black and indigenous and other people of color the sort of things that we just live with every day it's not anything that we even call out or have to put a spotlight on it's just like no this is the kind of thing that happens to you when people look at you and try to figure out what are you yeah yeah. like not even like your person like not who are you but no what are you what are you or Mm -hmm. how do you fit or what yeah the the fact explain yourself yeah yeah you know particularly given some of the news that we've you know had in the last 24 hours the call out of how ubiquitous it is for white gentrifiers particularly white women to weaponize calling the police mm-hmm. on someone because they don't want them to be in their space right like that she got into that really quickly yeah yeah and you're referencing something that happened over the weekend with a woman named amy cooper i believe is her name yes. and she was walking through central park in new york and her dog was not on a leash and a bird watcher asked her politely to put the dog on a leash. And she apparently felt very threatened by that for some reason. And essentially, and the bird watcher was a black man and she like, she threatened to call the police on him and say that he was threatening her life, essentially. That an African-American yes. man yeah. was threatening yes. her life. She Which was is very just specific like, about that. And there's yeah. video. It's like yeah. She knew exactly what she was doing. And it is really interesting to see those types of experiences included in the book like they are an everyday happenstance. Because they are an everyday happenstance. Right. And it's interesting to me wondering what readers who don't experience these sort of things Mm -hmm. particularly white readers like they're going to read through this and wonder like no does that really happen i feel like this is you know is this being put in here as a message is like there's really nothing any of this book that is a quote-unquote message so much as it is an accurate reflection of what our experiences are like and how racism and systemic injustices are regularly weaponized as a matter of course not as a out of the blue instance that only happens once in a while it's like this is every day the violence of gentrification the violence of bias and and racism all of the things that the woman in white intentionally weaponizes against the main characters are all there well and fear she doesn't have to create them yeah the fear like and she, she and the way she weaponizes fear and we see that most with Iceland, the staten island, um, the staten island yeah. um you know that character to me was one of the most 
frustrating, but also complex yeah. characters mm-hmm. to read in the book because she comes into her existence as Staten Island at a time when you you can see that she's on the verge of breaking free of her fear of her father's um, racism and misogyny. She's trying to do something different, but her fear is um, ramped up by what in the book I read as, as this infection that the woman in white spreads. And, and it, and it wasn't that she was infected with racism or fear. It was that for her and for everyone else in the book, I think who, who is infected, it actually just heightens or, Mm -hmm. or further expands what's already there and the shape her fear takes and, you know, kicking out the other burrows and like for her it was empowering to kind of stand up on her own and say the fact that she literally says get off my lawn i thought was like so perfect i yelled a little bit when i read that oh god i mean it was just like like i will never think and you know that phrasing already had its own weight before Mm -hmm. this but like Mm -hmm. after seeing the way it's used in this book it was just like oh my god like that's Uh, it right but for her what's interesting about her and what's complex about the character is for her it is empowerment right right? like drawing that boundary and kicking them off that nylon get off my lawn like for her there was there was power in it that i think felt like a counterpoint to her father like it was it was it wasn't that she was mm-hmm. just it's misdirected it's yes. you know like she should have been aiming it in the other direction right and then she yes. really would have been truly empowering herself as opposed mm-hmm. to just like bringing other people down again right yeah yeah and she, but but how she that was how she was experiencing it and that her whole relationship with her dad and ooh, that before for how easily fear can be turned into resentment and a misdirected sense of empo- of how your own empowerment comes from shoving away yeah. people who should be your collaborators who you should be in coalition with because they are also victims of the same sort of hatred and bigotry that you experience like the fact that this is embodied in a white woman is so well done mm-hmm. and i think it's done in a way that you you have a lot of empathy and understanding for why she is for why Iceland is the way that she is but it doesn't excuse it doesn't her. excuse her yeah yeah it doesn't ever excuse her choices and I think one of the most powerful things in this book for me was realizing that they don't need her in the end <laughs> you don't right. need to yeah you don't need to twist yourself into accepting or excusing racism in order to build, you don't have to work with racists to build a coalition basically mm-hmm. is like the message that I, I took from this is because if you look for the people who are actually supporting you, who are actually working with you, it doesn't have to be the ones who are, you are making yourself smaller for in order to accommodate because we have Jersey City, Manisa, <laughs> the character who's mm-hmm. right there, who was there literally the whole time and just that moment of where it's it's such a one it's such one of my favorite I storytelling tropes of be like cried. everything is about to fall <laughs> apart it's the last bit everyone's going to die and then they look over and they realize the thing the person that was going to help them the whole time the person who they yeah. needed to actually come together and you know Voltron the hell out of this whole thing was right there yeah. and it's Jersey City and yeah. the idea that what New York is what a city is is not dependent on arbitrary borders. It's dependent upon the people who decide to call you family. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, oh, God, that, that part is just so, like, I see so many reflections of my favorite stories in that moment. There are two other things I wanted to mention, especially around Iceland. One, what feels to her in the moment like empowerment and protection actually makes her more vulnerable. She doesn't realize it Mm -hmm. in the moment, but she is more vulnerable than any of the other boroughs because she's chosen to go it alone 
And it feels like the right decision. It feels like the safe decision in that moment because her fear is what's driving her. And what she's done in, is actually isolate herself and, and, and make herself more susceptible to the woman in white. But I also think it's interesting that Branga is, is in some ways the other side of that coin because Branca had mm. to also make a choice. Branca yeah. had a moment where she was like, well, those other boroughs are on their own. They're going to figure it out. I'm not going out looking for nobody. I'm not trying to be mm-hmm. a part of all of that. I'm the Bronx. I got this. I'm good. You know, it's not my problem. And, yeah. It's like, this is, that's, that's you all handle y'all stuff. I'm going to handle the Bronx. I'm yeah. good. Yeah. And, but she, as you said, Mitchie, she, she makes a turn, but that very easily for different reasons mm-hmm. could have, could have completely changed the outcome of the book had Bronca decided that she was going to continue to isolate and go it alone the way Staten Island decides to. And so in some ways they have, they have not identical, but mirror experiences. Yes. But you, you see what happens at that point of divergence when you step outside of the fear and make a different choice. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of Bronca's thinking too was driven by a sense of protectiveness and and there was some fear in there for her too i think mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah it's very interesting how it's the connections that we make with people and how isolated we feel versus how isolated we are that i mean with bronca she still has that very deeply protective instinct toward veniza mm-hmm. who is constantly throwing herself in into the fray because she just she just wants to help so much I know, she's so down for the cause <laughs> she's in it people <laughs> and it's it's not it's i think it's very funny to how it's not the other boroughs who convinced who i think ultimately convinced her to be part of this it's veniza and the other people who are living in the artist loft that she's responsible for, who are technically not supposed to be living there, but we all know that this happens mm-hmm. with a lot of artist collectives. Um, and it's her sense of protectiveness for other people is what allows her to make that connection and bridge that gap with the other boroughs. Whereas Iceland, in a lot of ways, she has so many more resources than Bronca. She has a roof over her head, you know, she has a car, she's, you know, she's in a materially comfortable situation, but she has no one. She has, right. she seems to have no friends. She's isolated both due to her father's, uh, you know, very, very controlling misogynistic tendencies, but also who is the one who she decides to reach out to? It's another white woman. Mm-hmm. When the woman in white takes on that, that, ask you know that particular appearance and it's really fascinating how there's a scene where you can almost see her ticking off the boxes as to Mm. why the woman in white even though she's a stranger is someone she feels safe with right yeah and it's like she looks totally like exactly how she's supposed to look you know it's it's essentially she looks like she belongs she looks like she's safe and all the things that she's been taught to see as safe and and trustworthy. Yeah. I think I found the insidiousness and like the, the sneakiness of the xenophobia in Mm -hmm. the Staten Island character to be really fascinating because it felt to me like Nora did a really good job of, again, not justifying it, not saying it's okay, but exploring how someone can sort of find themselves in that position without having made a whole lot of like super intentional, hateful choices to get yeah. there, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot when it comes to, you know, sorting out white privilege and all of that stuff is like actually looking around and figuring it out for yourself as opposed to just listening to what you've been told. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that that also speaks to her, isolation. I mean, Eisen didn't have many, and mind you, like no excuses are being made for that character, but part of what allows her to choose the way she chooses is that there's nobody there to really challenge her. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Nobody calls. Yeah. No, there's nobody to call her out. There's nobody to, to 
you know, say, wait, now you, you look at this guy and you think that he's dangerous. Why? Mm-hmm. To really challenge and, and make her parse out the why. And there's something in her that knows, I think, at a level that her father is racist and right, is misogynist. Right. Yeah, like it, it weirds her out. She's not. It weirds her with out, it. and and she tr- and she sort of pushes up against those boundaries a little bit by trying to go to New York. And you hear her mother say, you know, like kind of encouraging her to go to the city. But the, I mean, I've been I've been very fortunate in my life. I feel to have people who challenge me, who yeah. will call me out on my shit. Like they'll just be <laughs> yep, like. Yep. That yeah. was, <laughs> you were out Seriously? of line and <laughs> yeah. out of order. You know what I mean? Yeah. But she doesn't, yeah. she doesn't have that. She doesn't have that. And and as you said, Mitchie, in the, or yeah, I think you, you said it, Mitchie, in the absence of those voices, she turns to the familiar. Yeah. And the white woman in white is familiar. It's interesting that she works at a library of all places. Cause you know, like that, like a library has such amazing symbolism in terms of like, open access for anyone who walks into those doors and needs to figure out, you know, like you'd think that she would have, I don't know, by osmosis or something. Fear is powerful, but, man. Yeah. It's powerful. Also the homogeneity of the uh, community that she's in. I mean, that's true. If it's an uptight think, library, it doesn't help. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's, that's, that's also the point. And one of the things that Nora, that is consistent across all of Nora's work is a very, strong and deep understanding of how this sort of bias works and how it is so normal. Like, you know, we're saying like, oh, but it's a library. You would think I'm like, no, but who runs the library? Who works yeah, sure. yeah. at that library? Who's in her community? And I think one of the things that, you know, I don't I don't want to spend too much time talking about Iceland because, you know, weirdly we'd end up focusing on the one way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's make it about the white person. Yeah. But it's, <laughs> it's really fascinating because I think it shows that there's often a strain of pushback whenever people of color are talking about calling out racism and how it works. And a, a constant pushback is, oh, you just don't understand what it's like for white people. You don't understand how isolating it is and how easily it is for us to, you know, to be pulled into white supremacy from birth. I'm like, no, actually we know. You read books like this and you can see the author, you know, an author like Nora, she knows because we've had to know in order to navigate these spaces, how this shit works and how easy it is to fall into that kind of mindset. So it's not an issue of, oh, but you know, people of color are just too hard on white people. They don't understand what it's like. It's like, no, we do. And that's the thing. We're not gonna spend all this time trying to figure your shit out. We've already figured it out. What matters to us is the coalition building and the connections we can make in order to survive within this system to survive attacks from the outside. And that's what you see ultimately with the four remaining boroughs pulling in Jersey City, who was always mm-hmm. part, who was always one of them, is that we the coalitions that we need and that we should be building are with each other, with people who can make the effort to understand to yeah. our differences and see how we can work together versus trying to make excuses and fitting ourselves around somebody who still ultimately doesn't care about learning enough to not hurt us anymore. But well, here's you, you put I'm sorry, you, you bring up something interesting though there, Mitchie, in that the other borough, the other boroughs, the kind of learning you describe is an act of survival. It's an act of survival. Like we have to learn it so we can survive, so we can navigate these mm-hmm. sy- systems and come out on the other end less scathed <laughs> than, <laughs> than we would if we were ignorant of the system. So I think that's like, that's one part of it. It's like, yeah, we learn it because we got to learn it. Right. We have to. Right. That is white privilege, right? The fact that like, I don't have to learn it. Yeah. On the other side of it, though, to return to Iceland one more time, the assumption that that privilege is going to protect you Mm-hmm. is is mm-hmm. also false because the danger to Iceland was in her own home. It was yep. brought into her home by her father. Mm-hmm. The the guy who he brings home, I don't know, remember mm-hmm. if he was another God, officer he was so or what? Creepy. Yeah, yeah he was another officer. Yeah. Who attempts to yeah. assault her. 
it's like that protection only goes so far it's it's a veneer of protection mm -hmm. you know so it's it was a so watching like these these stories and, and these characters experiencing experiences playing out kind of in parallel to each other the the safety came from the people or within the group of people who were actually as you say coalition building working together coming together despite their differences and saying we got to figure this out we got to figure this out because we're all in danger mm -hmm. you know we're yeah. all in danger yeah oh Nora, Nora can write her ass off man <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, okay we're gonna talk more in just a minute Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. So I was really curious to ask you to so um the new york times book review for this book was written by a woman named amal el mohtar who is oh do you amal. know her oh i love amal she's one of my favorite authors as well oh and that's awesome absolutely lovely person so yeah she's a speculative fiction writer who lives in canada and and she had a really interesting point that i could relate to uh pretty strongly actually which is she talked about initially the the short story that this book was based on and she said in the review the story was wonderful, but it wasn't for me in a way that I couldn't fault, but also couldn't quite overcome. So it's with some gratitude that I found that the city we became, while still a joyous love letter to New York, broadens from its origins and explicitly welcomes the foreignness of readers like me. Uh, I thought that was really beautiful because I did think Nora did a great job of, you know, I mean, and even with the embodiment of Manhattan being this guy who like is just showing up to the city for the first time. And and the idea that that is what makes the city great is as many different kinds of people all coming together and working hard and, and living their lives. Um, but I did like one problem I had with this book was that it's just like it's so New York, you know, and like as a person who. <laughs> Do, like I grew up in Alaska you know like I don't really give a fuck about New York necessarily like it was I did wonder if this if I would find the story more compelling if it weren't like so New York and I'm curious if that caught either of you also so part so you know what's interesting is I had the opposite reaction part mm -hmm. of what made it compelling for me was that it was so New York really yeah yeah that was because yeah, same same for me People have very polarizing experiences <laughs> of the city, <laughs> of New York City. Like either they are New York, they love it, or they're like, this shit is hard. New York is hard. Yeah, it's hard, yeah. it's hard, it's hard. And I've been to New York, I've visited, I've never lived there. Mm -hmm. But um, I, so I'm sorry, so a slight aside, I was watching an interview recently um, with James Spader who plays uh, uh, Raymond Reddington in, in The Blacklist. And he was talking about mm -hmm. how he loves New York. Mm -hmm. like, I don't know why anybody, like people talk about business. I don't know why you'd ever leave. And I thought about this book because it was like, yeah, there people have very specific experiences. And for me, I feel like I understand New York better after reading this book than I have after visiting it, however many times I yes. visited it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was like, oh, when people talk about the Bronx, that's what they mean. Yeah, Queens too. It was like, oh, okay, I get exactly. it. Exactly. You know? So I had, I, it actually made me like New York more. I've never had a desire to live in New York, but this made me kind of huh. like more intrigued. <laughs> By, by like the experience of being a New Yorker. Yeah, I mean, that's great. I guess what it is is that it's it's not even for me that New York is hard. It's that I get really frustrated with people who think that New York is the center of the universe. You know, and I've oh, met sure. a lot of New Yorkers who who just like assume that you should already know everything about Queens or Manhattan or whatever. And and I find that to be really frustrating because I feel like often that interest in other places isn't reciprocated. And it's like, listen, like, 
I get that you think it's great. And I'm really glad that you've had all the amazing experiences <laughs> that you've had there. But like, there's, it's just not the center of the universe, you know? I think that's why having characters like Hong and Paolo for San Paolo, particularly Hong walking in and being like, I really don't know who any, I don't really know or care about any <laughs> yeah, of you. Yeah, just are. super over it. Right. Like, I'm from one of these older cities who's been around much longer than New York. Like, so I feel like the character in particular was there, was there sort of to pinprick New York's ego uh in like in particular because he's just very like no look these other cities exist and these other cities have been fighting uh have also gone through this thing new york is doing something different because all cities are different but maybe not as different because it sounds like it's alluded to that something similar happened to london when London became aware, but it didn't go as well, and we don't know why. And I really want to know what happened to London. <laughs> um, but I, I think with what the book did in sort of pricking that idea that New York is the center of the universe, because yes, I, that I, we live in Chicago. Right, right. I know. Chicago's I was so happy to move here and be like, oh my god, <laughs> the biggest chip on my shoulder now. I can totally just lean oh into this. Oh my god, yeah. I have such a big chip on my shoulder because I love Chicago so much. And it's exactly. always like, oh yeah, let's talk about New York. New York, right, right. But the idea is that New York exists not just as one person, but as a collective of different people. That makes New York way more relatable to me because it makes me relate to it like Chicago. Like Chicago is a collective of, I mean, if Chicago became aware, Chicago would not be just one person. It would be all of these different I mean, it would be like 62 neighborhoods, right? right. <laughs> oh my God. It would just be like an insane cacophony. <laughs> it, it, would, it would be very interesting to see how that would actually break down. But it, it, makes, it makes it relatable. Like this is what cities are. They are a collection of stories. And when you can see New York as a collection of stories of all these different people rather than this monolithic yes. New York is the shining city yes. sort of thing. I yeah. think that makes it much more interesting to me. Let's listen to another voicemail. Let's listen to let's do Sonia because this is this is a fun one to talk about. Hi, Greta. This is Sonia calling from New Brunswick, Canada. I am the person who made the Twitter comment about chapter seven which is the pool scene, as I call it, um, and how it just really made me feel like I was reading a Stephen King book. And I love Stephen King. So that's definitely a compliment. Um, it was creepy, spine tingling, edge of your seat. I felt like I wanted to close my eyes at parts because it was a little intense. And maybe I'm just a big wimp. But that whole chapter just completely pulled me into the book. So if I wasn't hooked before, um, I was certainly hooked then. And I just want to say that I have loved every single book choice, except maybe for the Testaments. <laughs> Sorry, Margaret Atwood. Um, thank you, Greta. And um, I can't wait to see what's next. Thanks. I just thought that was a fun one because it brings up, you know, Mitchie, you were just talking about genre with this one. Like Nora calls it urban fantasy, but it also has some pretty strong elements of horror in there. And then it's also got some very funny moments, which partly like tonally, it's so different from at least the Broken Earth trilogy for sure that way, you know? I, I when I think back, so the first the first trilogy I read, right? Because um, you read her inheritance trilogy too, didn't you? Jen? The inheritance and, and the um, the inheritance trilogy, which actually had a lot of humor in it, mm -hmm. um, yeah. and that's when I fell in love with her writing because it it was it was funny. It was um, there were moments that were not not necessarily creepy, but definitely like teeth clenchy, mm -hmm. tense. <laughs> But was it was it like this explicitly yeah. funny though, or was it more? Because I think like there were some some humorous moments, like snarky moments or whatever, in the Broken Earth trilogy. But it was more like wry than it was like outright funny. I mean, I laughed out loud. Did and, you? And I did. I mean, I I laughed. There were parts where I, where I laughed out loud in that book, and there were okay. moments of just sort of like transcendent joy that I also feel. So like at the end of the last book, um, Kingdom of the Gods, I think that was the third, yeah. the third book. 
the last line of that book, which of course I don't have handy, but the last line was transcendent for me in the way Jersey City becoming was transcendent. Wow. It's, yes. it's something yes. about, and, and so we, in the three of us, we'll, we'll dance. It's something about dancing among the stars. And I was sitting on a plane mm-hmm. reading that and mm-hmm. I just started sobbing. <laughs> there was just something about it that just was like so, oh, I don't have another word for it except for transcendent. And so for me, this, this book, more than the Broken Earth trilogy, captured the combination of humor and tension and transcendence and character development that I fell in love with um, when I first started reading reading her work. This captured really captured it for me. Yeah, horror is not necessarily my jam, right? But the elements of horror are used so so they're not overly relied on as like you know a jump scare. Like there's there's really really great building of tension. And I just really love the fact that the idea of the book and the tie to the Cthulhu mythos. Mm-hmm, I mean, like, the woman in white yeah. is actually Dread Riley. She she is the you know she is the city front where the things slumber, right? Like that's actually who she is. And I love how the whole conceit is it's basically turning all the things that H.P. Lovecraft was afraid of because. Let's yep. be real, the man was a horrid racist. Not just, oh, but everybody was racist. He was so racist that back in his time, people were already calling him out on his racism. <laughs> he was not even a product of his time. <laughs> no, he, he, he was terrible. But, you know, he built, and so much of his mythos and the horror in it is built on fear of the other. Yeah. And so much of that is what Nora takes in this book, and the horror is not fear of the other as in fear of people of color, you know, fear of the xenophobia. It Mm -hmm. is fear that the things that you love, that your home will be destroyed, that everything that you've built, that your entire identity will be wiped out. And it'll happen because the people around you are so, their fears of other people and their entitlement is so deeply embedded that they won't see how they are being used in order to destroy their own home. Like Stephen King's It is extraordinarily problematic in so many ways. But the thing that always frightens me the most about that book was the idea that the kids were in danger because the adults around them literally could not see. Hmm. what they were being menaced by and in fact were often being used as tools by the thing that was trying to eat them and that sense of fear and powerlessness is what really like made me tense and where a lot of the horror in this book comes from is the idea that there's this monstrous thing around you which by the way let's point out is all all white it's not darkness right that oh, people yeah. are yeah that we're afraid of the tentacles are literally white the woman is dressed in white it's not that she's necessarily a white woman but she's dressed in white um all these things that you are the only ones who can see them and nobody else is going to help you yes the fact that it's largely unseen i think is terrifying in a number of ways. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think it speaks to a lot of stuff around like white privilege and white supremacy and racism. I think it also is terrifying and resonant in terms of global pandemic too. Right. And Mm -hmm. the idea that like, you know, to read this book while there is an infection happening and you don't know if you have it and you could be spreading it is also like deeply resonant and terrifying, you know? about unintentional resonance right when it comes to horror for me though the the you know like i'll watch a zombie movie right and i won't jump at at the zombie stuff what's always more terrifying for me is the way people react Mm -hmm. when they're in crisis or when they're under attack or when they're afraid those are the scariest stories for me and i think in this book by creating this entity the woman in white where the infection 
it, it doesn't make people racist. It doesn't make people misogynistic. It simply amplifies what's, what's already there. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah. me, that's the, that's the horror of the book is that, is that idea that something's just waiting there, you know, waiting for a little sunshine it's... and a little water. <laughs> to, <you> know, to... <laughs> Let's listen to a voicemail from Sarah and then we'll do Katrina kind of shortly after that one. Hi, Nerdette. My name is Sarah. I live in Austin, Texas, and I think I just read my favorite book. And that's saying something because I read a lot of books. And this book, I didn't want it to end. It was just everything I needed right now. I think the parts of it that spoke the most to me, like literally I had to, I, I cried when when we, when they got to this part of it about the cities that died. I am a humanitarian aid worker and I've worked all over the planet in some of the hardest situs in our current era. And I got to that part of the story and it just really, really moved me. And um, it's actually, I feel like I live in a city that is dying, Austin, Texas, um, for all of the reasons that the brilliant, the one and the only N.K. Jemison laid out around gentrification and the dishonesty and the, the capitalism. It doesn't have to be bad, but it certainly is. And the way that we're seeing it play out here, humanity can do better. And I just I feel like at the end of the book, that's what I got, is that humanity can be better. And this book really moved me to do my part in that. And, oh, God, it was just so good. I was thinking about that. And from living, you know, here in Chicago and, you know, being from Detroit, mm-hmm. we, what it feels like we've kind of come to terms with is less that a city will live and die, but more that we are willing to let parts of cities die. Mm-hmm. It's like, if yeah. it's like, in, if we are a city, if our body is a city, that we are content with just letting a piece of our body waste away and, and feeling like, it, well, it doesn't matter for the rest of my body. Yeah, my arm, yeah, I'm just gonna, you know, let whatever that, whatever problem that is with that arm just continue to grow and yeah. develop. And it's right. not gonna matter for any other part of my body, which is insane when you think about mm-hmm. it, right? It's like, of course, it's yeah. not how it works. But that's the way it, it feels to me we, we've come to think about cities. Like, it's okay if this neighborhood doesn't thrive or worse you know if it suffers mm-hmm. because this yep. this other section of the city is doing just fine yeah and look at who who look at who often lives in those areas right mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it's such a blatant reflection of who this society considers worth supporting worth taking care of and I mean, again, in the book, the idea that gentrification is a tool of this, you know, the, this otherworldly threat, that gentrification is part of the disease and is used intentionally to kill these cities before they're ever able to be born, or at least weaken the cities so that they won't survive the trauma of this birth into awareness. It's such a on-point reflection that it hurts because you can see exactly what that looks like, yeah, in in these other cities. And it's, I mean, it feels like such an obvious thing. And I'm, I wish that we'd seen more of that metaphor being used in fiction. Totally. Well, and I think too, the metaphor that like the, the person who is embodying the city, like the primary as they call him mm-hmm. is what, like a queer kid experiencing homelessness, you know, like yeah, right, right. I thought that a black kid without a home. Right. Yeah. To like, to really think about that in terms of what's worth investing in and supporting too, is like, here's mm-hmm. a kid who no one has invested in or supported. And I thought that symbolism was, was very poignant and pretty beautiful too. Yeah. So we like to use um, like arbitrary rating systems for each book we choose. And um, someone actually came up with one for us on Instagram. Kelsey gave it 
five out of five tentacles. <laughs> and I thought it would be fun to see how many tentacles out of five y'all would also give the city we became. Though I think I know based on your glowing reviews. Oh, I'm a hard five out of five tentacles. Hard five? Waving in the sky. What do you think, Mitchie? Oh, I'm giving it a full octopus eight. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely done, Mitchie. I love it. I love it. (laughs) We're going to lean in. Might as well lean into the tentacle metaphor really (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Okay, let's listen to one last voicemail, which I think will be a great sort of prompt for a couple of homework assignments that we could give and then... And then we'll say goodbye. This is Katrina. Hi, Nerdette. This is Katrina from Chicago. I'm calling because I just finished uh, the book club book by N.K. Jemison, And it was gorgeous. Thank you for having me read it. It was absolutely beautiful. And it was very clearly a love letter to the city of New York from someone who loves their city, who lives there and knows it and adores it. So I really want someone to write that book about Chicago. I think it's rude that New York gets all the superheroes and the epic fantasies, and I want someone to write a book that is a love letter to my city that I love so much. Okay, thanks. So I thought about it. I have a couple of recommendations, but Mitchie, I was wondering, are there any books that are set in Chicago that you think people should read if they want to get that goodness? Oh. I know I'm putting you on the spot. There is a book, though. Oh, Oh, dear Lord. Hold on. Eve Ewing. Oh, yes. oh, Electric Arches. Also, yes. now I also have something too. Oh, Thank good. Yes. Perfect. Electric Arches, which is it's a combination of poetry, yeah. visual art, and prose, but it's it blends realism and and fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is very firmly placed in Chicago. That's a really and good it one. is amazing. Yeah. So yes, that one I can reviewing electric arches. Mm-hmm. Mitchy, that inspired you. Yes, I do know that Yatasha Womack is a Chicago-based Afrofuturism writer and creator. Uh, she's done a, a short film called "Love: A Love Letter to the Ancestors from Chicago," so that is definitely worth checking out. And I do also believe that her film Bar Star City, which I don't know if it's actually been completed yet, is also supposed to be taking place in Chicago. Awesome. So uh, definitely look at Natasha Womack's work. I really wish that I knew more off the top of my head about SFF that was set Mm -hmm. in Chicago. And I am sure that I will think of it as soon as we get off this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I would be more than happy to have both of you back anytime because y'all are Oh, would love to. Especially since Jed is moving and I didn't know this. Oh no, that's how you found out. Did you miss the announcement? (laughs) I'm sorry, (laughs) Mitchie. We are going to have to have a discussion. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry. The thing is, the city's going to lose her, but the country's going to get her. So, you know, it's I, I, I'm sad, but it's a win. Thank you. Granite Monsters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Thanks again, you two. This was so much fun. Thank you, Granite. I loved it. Thank you so much. All right. Hope you enjoyed this month's book club. I am very excited to tell you that next month we have chosen Britt Bennett's second novel. It's called The Vanishing Half. It comes out on June 9th, which means you do have a little bit of time if you haven't yet read her first novel, The Mothers. I highly recommend it. It is not required reading. It's not like a prequel to The Vanishing Half or anything, but it's just really great. And why deprive yourself of something awesome? Our panel discussion of The Vanishing Half is going to happen on the last Friday in June. That is Friday, June 26th. And of course, we would love to hear what you think about the book before then. In the meantime, if you want to keep in touch with Nerdette, you've got options. You can follow us on Instagram for book reviews. We're at Nerdette Podcast there. You could also join Nerdette Podcast's book club on Goodreads. Just search for those words and it'll show up. Also, feel free to sign up for our weekly newsletter, especially if you want a delightfully curated list of things to cook and read and watch and do. You can get that by signing up at wbez.org slash AF. The show is produced by me, Greta Johnson, with help from Justin Bull. Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. 
do your homework, which means, you know, go read as many books as possible all the time. Just like, you know, Garfield, the pizza, but like books, just do it. I don't know what that means, but I think it worked. Okay, bye. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.